Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another commercial-free episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for premium subscribers. In the authoritarian's veteran constitutional lawyer, Jonathan W. Emord, reveals the untold story and largely hidden practices of authoritarians who've worked inside the United States government to undermine the Constitution and override rights protections from the earliest days of the progressive era to the present. Jonathan discusses how Hegelian socialism arose in America as a primary defense of slavery in the antebellum South and how dozens of American academics were trained in German historical schools in the 1860s through the 1900s to hate America's Republican form of government and favor an authoritarian administrative state run by unelected bureaucrats. Jonathan Emord is a constitutional and administrative lawyer who's litigated before the federal courts and agencies for 35 years. He's the author of numerous published works and books, including Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, The Rise of Tyranny, Global Censorship of Health Information, and Restore the Republic. His latest is The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present. Hey, Jonathan, welcome. How are you? Great. How are you, Richard? Terrific. I always like to start off with a definition. How do you define authoritarian? Authoritarians are people who believe in submission to a governing will imposed at the expense of individual rights to life, liberty, and property. But you also talk about people who demand pure democracy as potentially authoritarian. So, for example, up here in Canada, we have the concept of parliamentary supremacy. That's a pure democracy in the sense that it's majority rule. Is that also considered authoritarian? It is because there's a tyranny of the majority whereby the majority can run roughshod over the rights of individuals. So it enables uh, individuals to execute power in a tyrannical way unless there's a check on democracy, as in uh, a system of checks and balances that the Founding Fathers in the United States designed for the American uh, Republic. And typically throughout history, do authoritarian regimes tend to be from the far left or from the far right? They're actually from both ends of the spectrum because uh, one one might say that a uh, national socialism, as in uh, Nazi Germany and, and uh, fascist Italy, uh, was a form of authoritarianism, no doubt, but uh, many would say that was from the right as opposed to Marxism and communism, generally speaking, socialism, which most would say is from the left. left. So let's talk about what happened on Capitol Hill in January of this year. You had a hodgepodge group of people storming the citadel of democracy after the election. You refer to them as authoritarians, but would you include someone like Ashley Babbitt in there? People that were there because they perceived that maybe the the rule of law no longer applied and, and election laws were being thrown out the window and so forth. Well, undoubtedly, there are people possessed of misconceptions as to what the rule of law is at any time in history. But those who lead a movement to um, violate laws that govern protection of property and people's liberties and lives are, are individuals who do not respect the rule of law, and that's part and parcel of an interest in authoritarianism, that you 
basically are uh, so hedonistic that you think you yourself uh, can act in place of duly constituted laws that you can execute uh, at will people who object to your views because you have the power to do so without regard to due process, the judicial system. There are uh, lawful means by which we can express our grievances, uh, not least of which is lawful protest. But when you exceed lawful protest and you break into a building and you destroy property inside of it and you uh, uh, place uh, uh, improvised explosive devices outside of the Republican or Democratic national uh, headquarters and so forth, you're obviously engaged in criminal activity. Right. So let's talk about uh, the progressives. Uh, this this is a term that many on the far left like to use. How does progressivism relate to authoritarianism? In the United States, uh, what has been termed as progressivism really is a brand of authoritarianism uh, from the left. And um, progressivism, as is defined within the United States, originated with uh, academics heading to Germany in the 1800s after the Civil War uh, in droves to be educated about the administrative state and about collectivism in the Hegelian mold of socialism. They then came back, populated the universities, and created an entirely new curricula which denounced uh, classical education, denounced the uh, reverence that previously existed for the Founding Fathers for individual rights, for the notion of God-given rights, and placed in its stead this idea that the Constitution was a restraint on, on efficiency, uh, prohibited uh, by its slow operation, rapid uh, government measures to create some sort of a utopia, and that in order to achieve the ends desired rapidly, the Constitution had to be dispensed with. And this, this motivated many people, including even Woodrow Wilson, who adhered to this notion and actually translated into the concept of a living Constitution. But what's quite remarkable is that Hegelian socialism, that is collectivism, the idea that individuals have no worth except as servants of the state, uh, uh, is something that became very popular in the United States and actually then led to justifications for all sorts of administrative actions that uh, trenched upon individual liberty, not least of which is eugenics. Right, right. And and it even informed foreign policy around the time of Theodore Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson, I guess, because they felt it was, what, their, their moral duty to export this form of progressivism to the, the rest of the world. That's true, and it was also uh, encouraged by uh, Herbert Spencer's concepts of social Darwinism. Social Darwinism was something that arose through many sources, but Herbert Spencer coined the term survival of the fittest, and this was a very popular notion uh, in the period from the, eight, the uh, late 1880s on, uh, that, that somehow, uh, as was Hegel's teaching, uh, a superior race would uh, conquer necessarily and perhaps enslave uh, inferior races around the world, and that uh, European races were deemed to be superior, other races were deemed to be inferior. And this view, this racist view, actually permeated through the liberal culture 
and became uh, uh, something that was taught quite liberally uh, in in education at the collegiate level and even even in in the under uh, levels. But w- what's remarkable is that really uh, liberalism is rooted in uh, Hegelian defense of slavery and the idea of slavery. Uh, if you take a look at socialism, really socialism is in many respects uh, the monolithic enslavement of all people to the state. It's a deprivation of individual liberty with all liber- liberty withheld by the state such that the state may direct private uh, industry, enterprise, choice of lifestyle and so on and deny you the freedom to use your own property, your own speech, your own will to create a world of your own uh, that is uh, capitalistic. Uh, and so there's a, there's a natural, obviously, um, tension between capitalism and socialism. Socialism cannot exist long with capitalism, although, interestingly enough, totalitarianism can have capitalism under its foot. Uh, but uh, we've seen in China that the fruits of capitalism, if, if, if a capitalist industry becomes too successful in the view of the party, uh, the uh, the Communist Party simply takes it over. And and how does racism and and class warfare play into the hands of the authoritarians? Well, the authoritarians are all about power. Uh, in order to direct the the resources of others to do uh, to be serving your ends, the ones you define, you necessarily have to have. Uh, power to confiscate, to take others' liberty, to take their property. And you look for, if you're an authoritarian like the Bolsheviks were, uh, you look for weaknesses in society that can be exploited. And those weaknesses arise, for example, in elements that are trigger points that can cause large numbers of people to protest or to act against government, against uh, American culture, history, and so forth in ways that they can use, that is, these leaders of these authoritarian movements can use to overthrow governments and overthrow um, um, uh, business and to uh, make themselves uh, parties in power. So, for example, the BLM organization and Antifa in the United States uh, blend into crowds protesting uh, acts that are perceived to be uh, uh, ones of racism or police brutality against uh, the black race particularly and then uh, they they exploit the crowd as a as a uh, as a shield to hide their nefarious intents they plant uh, caches of weapons that are then drawn out at night they use them to burn down buildings to loot buildings to uh, uh, attack people to assault them to murder them and uh, they intend on getting away with that. Their, their main objective is to bring down, and they are overt about this, to bring down government uh, to, at the local, state, and national level, and to do that through any means possible. In other words, they have no uh, regard for life. The hypocrisy of their position, the, the, the fallacy of it, the, the, the lie that is inherent in it, uh, arises when you take, for example, the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Well, if indeed Black Lives Matter uh, to you, you certainly wouldn't burn down black-owned businesses. You should, certainly wouldn't assault black uh, children or black adults. You certainly would not take measures that would cause such economic injury to the uh, uh, places in which black people are resident 
that you cause them to suffer immeasurably for indefinite periods of time. And yet, in callous disregard of black people and, and in using them, these groups have exploited the black population to achieve their end of overthrow. And so you find, you know, what, what, on, what on earth does burning a police precinct have to do with advancing the interests of the black community? What does burning a building down uh, do? What does looting all of the uh, businesses in an area do? What does assaulting innocent people do? Uh, how does that create justice? How does injustice create justice? Uh, you know, doesn't. Right. And are the the rank and file, if I can use that term, of, of Black Lives Matter, the people that are out in the streets protesting uh, George Floyd's uh, slaying or uh, the, the foot soldiers uh, with Antifa, are they just useful fools or are, do they understand what the end game is or are they being manipulated by, you know, the, 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 those in the leadership that are operating from the shadows? I think uh, many people are sincere in their angst and anger and uh, over these situations. I think that uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter stoke these sentiments in order to create a mass protest, which they then exploit to cause injury and destroy, you know, government buildings and private enterprise and so on. So. Uh, there are many people who are innocent uh, uh, of any wrongdoing who protest, of course, uh, and they have an absolute right to do so. But when they turn the corner individually and commit acts of crime, then that's when they are uh, should be being apprehended and prosecuted. And uh, whatever force is necessary to ensure that the law and order is maintained, that property is protected, uh, and that innocent people are not uh, victimized should be exercised by the state. But what we find all too often is that those uh, people who are in political positions who hail from uh, a, a direction that is similar to Black Lives Matter or Antifa, far left, um, are willing to ignore the acts or condone them or even promote them. And the consequence is an utter breakdown in the rule of law, total insecurity in communities that are affected, and uh, ruination, really, uh, uh, on bordering anarchy uh, on on the populations that are there. And sadly, in the wake of all of these protests uh, where BLM and Antifa are active, there is such damage that the communities that are left behind suffer economic consequences that last for a long time, probably even for, in some instances, for a generation or more. I remember when even liberal was a, a dirty word in the United States in, in political circles. They would try and uh, the Republicans would try and, you know, uh, cajole or trick a Democrat into admitting that they were a liberal. Uh, as how far we've come or how far we've fallen. Now they they openly embrace the word socialism. How did that happen in, in the span of a generation? The authoritarians, I explain that history, uh, which dates all the way back to the antebellum South, when people, people largely are oblivious to the fact that the institution of slavery uh, was justified against abolitionist criticism based in large measure on it being considered an ideal socialism, an ideal system of socialism. Edmund Ruffin of Virginia, a famous fire eater, 
said, our system of domestic slavery, and I'm quoting him, offers in use and to the greatest profit for all parties in the association the realization of all that is sound and valuable in the socialist theories and doctrines. Thus, in the institution of domestic slavery, and in that only, are most completely realized the dreams and sanguine hopes of the socialist school. And he's not alone in these sentiments. They were uh, communicated by many in government, uh, in Congress, and in uh, uh, the position of governorships in the South uh, during the antebellum period. And so it was the case that socialism was the justification for plantation slavery. Well, take that uh, then after the Civil War, and what became of it? With the, ex- with the destruction of slavery in the 13th, under the 13th Amendment, it did not also extinguish this doctrine of socialism, which was Hegelian. The Southerners adhered to the Hegelian notion of socialism, overtly stating that they, they were doing so. And so it became then uh, interesting that it was translated from that uh, uh, period in defense of slavery to a new kind of slavery, which was slavery to the state. And that was developed in the historic schools in uh, Bismarck's Germany, where academics flocked after uh, the Civil War and came back and replaced in the schools, in academia, a reverence for individual rights and for the Constitution and for uh, the notion of the rule of law with a new doctrine, which was uh, one in favor of the administrative state and against individual rights, in favor of collective rights, and that the state was the origin of the rights, that God was not. And so they, they supplanted uh, the founding father's conception of the form, uh, founding origins of the Constitution, largely iterated in the, in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, with this Hegelian doctrine. And then they translated the uh, doctrine from an academic environment into uh, the administrative state when they tried to replicate the German administrative state in this country, and they made a modified attempt, which ultimately succeeded, in creating the administrative state. Most people are shocked to, to learn that over three-quarters of all laws created by the federal government of the United States come not from Congress, not from those they elect, but from the unelected heads of the regulatory agencies. So the foundational principle, one of the foundational principles of our republic is that government exists by the consent of the governed. And that concept of consent was indispensable to the idea of individual sovereignty. Well, it's rooted out entirely in the administrative state because we never consented to the existence of the administrative state. It was a power grab. It required a constitutional amendment under Article 5 of the Constitution. No such constitutional amendment was ever offered. It was just taken. They created an administrative state with combined legislative, executive, and judicial power that could operate independent of the constitutional branches. Well, the Constitution vests exclusive legislative power in Congress, exclusive executive power in the President and exclusive power to adjudicate issues under the, under the federal constitution and federal laws in the judiciary. Yet the progressives 
uh, in the period from about the 1870s forward, progressively moved the power of government out of the repositories the Founding Fathers put it in into the administrative state they never uh, authorized. And so they did it without a constitutional amendment. They just seized it. There's no consent of the governed there. And the consequences have been dire for uh, businesses and for individual rights. There's virtually no rights protection in the administrative state. The accused is guilty at the time of accusation. There's no presumption of innocence. There's no protection for your Sixth Amendment rights. There's no protection for uh, to confront one's accusers in the administrative state. There's no Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. There's no constitutional pro- uh, protection for uh, pro- the pro- uh, no constitutional prohibition against general warrants that is affected by the administrative state. The administrative state uses general warrants, which were hated by the founding fathers. Doesn't follow the federal rules of civil procedure and evidence. It uh, denies the accused trial by jury as required by the Sixth and Seventh Amendments. And its decisions are exempt from meaningful ju- judicial review because of the doctrines of deference employed by the federal courts. So, so it creates a real tyranny and a, a, a gross deprivation of individual liberty and property. So this permanent administrative state, was that what President Trump was referring to as the deep state? Are they synonymous? Well, I think so. Um, his, at least uh, some of it, there's overlap at least, because his reference to the deep state was oftentimes uh, synonymous with his um, reference to uh, unlawful prosecution through the Department of Justice based on the Russia hoax, uh, the notion that he was somehow, co- his campaign was somehow colluding with the Russians, which was fabricated and was used by James Comey as a foundation for uh, the abuse of, of legal process and for falsifying, uh, submitting knowingly false uh, affidavits and documents to the FISA courts. So that certainly was what he was referring to as a deep state, but his, his concept of deep state was broader. Um, I think it embraced most of the administrative state, but I'm not, I can't speak for him. I can't, I can't know for sure, but it seems to. Uh, I want to come come back to Black Lives Matter for a moment because their their founders are uh, you know are avowed Marxists. They they're not shy about that, um, and I, I think it's an important lesson that you you um, lay out in the book about the the carnage uh, that has come about in the twentieth century uh, at the hands of Marxists and communists. Maybe you could just sort of um, you know give us the the rundown the historical overview of, of the bloodshed caused by communist regimes. Well, it's interesting to note that uh, communism has taken more human life than natural disasters, wars, pestilence, famine. Uh, over 100 million people have uh, succumbed to uh, violence caused by communist regimes. Uh, and. Uh, that tally, that's a conservative tally, as I explain in the book. Uh, and, you know, everything from the Cultural Revolution to uh, the Red Terror uh, to Pol Pot's uh, murderous regimes, uh, regime uh, all speak to uh, authoritarian power uh, in the far-left mode. Um, it, murders are almost 
uh, a defining characteristic of communist regimes in the world. Um, right now, the Uyghurs are, are being, being brutalized, even having their organs removed and, and put on the, 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 the market for, for, uh, for uh, transplants. Um, they're, they're utterly brutal. I mean, the concentration camps, the forced indoctrination, the utter uh, humiliation of people, using violence against them, uh, raping them. I mean, the, the list of carnage and abuses uh, against people who are, are simply uh, harboring a view in favor of liberty for themselves and their families, or have a religious view that uh, poses a potential power threat uh, to communists has been has been a source or a justification for brute force. If you talk to somebody who's uh, lived under communism, like for example Donna Casanova, who uh, gives her story in the book, you find that uh, they always talk about uh, the utter lack of a of rule of law, uh, the 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 deceit and the the manipulation of people that happens in communism, that you may be okay for today, but tomorrow if you become an enemy of the state through no fault of your own, you're suddenly, uh, your life's turned upside down, you, your, your family members are taken away, they may be murdered, they may be placed in, in work uh, camps. You just don't know. You don't have any sovereignty. You're entirely a victim of circumstances. You live every day and every moment uh, as if you were holding your breath. You cannot know from moment to moment whether the tide will turn. You know, here you are in communist China uh, with Mao Zedong in charge, and suddenly it's the intelligentsia that are now the enemies of the people, and they are found out and destroyed, uh, and they're incarcerated, and their properties are taken away from them. Or it may be the people who have some connection with the West. Or there's always a need for an enemy, and the reason for that is that those in power who lust for for power and to get there have murdered so many uh, continue to have to murder and continue to have to suppress any source of power that may be in competition with themselves in order to maintain control. So everybody is a potential threat to the dictator. Everybody. Whether it's a military general who succeeds in battle, whether it's a captain of industry, whether it's a person with a charismatic personality who might uh, influence a large number of people, they're all looked at with suspicion. So what happens? People m try to blend into a mediocre, uh, mediocre state. They try to disappear. They don't want to be noticed. They don't want to stand out for excellence. They don't want to stand out for anything, for any talent, because doing so makes you a marked person. And, you know, that's life in a communist state, and that's what BLM wants for America, and that's what Antifa wants for the world, and BLM would want for the world as well, I suppose. Uh, but, but wherever we see socialism uh, employed, it ends in economic ruin and disaster and ultimately, you know, murder and, and uh, poverty. Uh, if you look at it as a, as a as a virus, you know viruses typically don't try and kill their host; otherwise, they can no longer replicate. But it, it, why don't they? Uh, I'm not even sure what, what I'm asking here. But it, it seems like socialism as a virus is is a, is an, a, a failure. It it always kills its host. That's true. 
uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said that the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. And that's, that's the truth of socialism. Uh, it, it, the truth of socialism is that when you attack uh, successful enterprise by taxing it into oblivion, when you take away the fruits of labor, you create a disincentive. No one wishes to work uh, to, to the maximum or to the fullest extent possible or with the greatest efficiency if doing so results in no gain, no personal gain of, of any kind. So as a result, mediocrity reigns. So in the former Soviet Union, they couldn't produce a submarine that didn't have multiple problems that were life-threatening. They couldn't produce an automobile that was decent. They couldn't produce uh, uh, any uh, commercial good that was competitive with the West. Virtually none. They might be known for caviar, but then animal did that. The problem with, 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 uh, with communism is that, and socialism is that it saps the life's blood out of the most productive elements of society and yet expects those productive elements to continue. And as you point out, uh, that just doesn't happen. They expire, or they collapse, or they just go along at a snail's pace because any productive activity is is uh, not rewarded. Uh, but those at the top, uh, it seems like it's capitalism for them, uh, but socialism for the rest of us. So we have the the co-founder of BLM recently buying these multi-million dollar homes, you know, all over Southern California. Um, I mean, why can't people see through that? Well, that's also, you know, that uh, socialism is one lie after another. So you've got this BLM activist who, who proclaims herself to be a proud Marxist. Uh, and yet, like all Marxists who gain power, uh, what they do with their power is to, uh, to, to, to embellish themselves so much with the wealth and the property of others that they... Uh, are detached even more and more and more from the people that they say they are uh, uh, akin to. And so you end up with these leaders, as you point out, um, being the biggest capitalists of all. They have massive resources. They become global travelers. Uh, BLM uh, organization, former head Patrice Colors, she buys properties around the, the United States and around the world that are uh, substantial properties, so worth quite a bit and vastly exceed any lifestyle that would uh, be one that uh, she is, she's saying that she's working to, uh, to, to serve. Uh, so she, while, while she speaks for the poor, she lives uh, a lavish life, and that's because she's exploited them to acquire that lavish life. But she's not different in that regard from any other uh, socialist leader, from Maduro, for example. Not different at all, and from any other socialist leader, from Fidel Castro, or from Stalin, or from uh, Paul Pot, they all have riches beyond the the wildest imagination that could be uh, could be had by any citizen within their country. And and what about the corporations, the woke corporations that uh, are funding BLM, uh, that give all the outward appearance anyway of being progressive? Is this just a cynical ploy? On their part, are they generally now populated by authoritarians and progressives? Uh, are they are they you know fearful? Are they basically you know trying to avoid being taken down by the authoritarians and survive somehow to live for another day? What's going on there? 
Yeah, there are always cowards in the midst who will uh, befriend the dictator or befriend the group that is loud and cantankerous So, on, on the theory that uh, by doing so, they're buying themselves goodwill. Now, that that doesn't actually happen. Uh, what ordinarily happens is that uh, any source of wealth or power, a communist views as a potential threat. And so it's just a question of time before the communist turns and destroys those institutions. But you have these institutions that try to appear both to the public uh, as champions of the new wokeness and also to these uh, violent activists. And they, they think that it's buying them currency, both with the public, they think it will buy their goods with more uh, uh, frequency, and with these uh, organizers of violent movements that they will be spared somehow from their wrath. And it doesn't work in any respect. Uh, the public has very little respect for the institutions. If you ask individually, uh, they may like a brand, but when it comes to the organization that is the producer of the brand, they're either, either ambivalent or they have a negative opinion. Uh, and when it comes to uh, this association, it actually backfires quite frequently because it, it takes people from the other side of the spectrum, conservatives and libertarians, and makes them view with high suspicion these enterprises that have aligned themselves with the enemies of liberty in the, in the country and in the world. Uh, you know, when, when, when the NBA cozies up to um, uh, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and when uh, large corporations cozy up to companies that manufacture with slave labor products, knowing full well that those uh, are slave, that slave labor in China is responsible for their ability to compete in the marketplace to some extent, and they, yet they turn a blind eye to the abuse of people's liberties in the production of their own products. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that makes people, when the truth is finally, finally comes to the fore, uh, really disgusted. Uh, but they do it because, again, they're driven by a motive to, to succeed in the market, and they have no scruples. And that's not true of everybody. It's selectively true. But we ought to be taking steps to crack down on companies that rely on slave labor and affiliations with the Chinese communists that afford them uh, access to intelligence and to technologies that can be used by their military to uh, 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 overcome our advantages and, and neutralize our advantages. Um, so we, we need, a, we need to, to stand for liberty, as our founding fathers did, and be fearless in that. The greatest defining characteristic of the United States, uh, from the vantage point of those all over the world, has been, at least until now, that at least in the United States you could be free, that you had both freedom and an opportunity to succeed, that the market was open, and that it was a diverse culture where people from all over the world had come, and regardless of race and regardless of ethnicity, we're able to succeed in this bounteous land of opportunity. And socialism destroys the element of opportunity entirely, directs people's lives. They've experienced that in their own countries around the world. Do we want the United States no longer to be able to stay with a, with a uh, sincere 
uh, with high integrity that uh, we stand for freedom. Do we want do we want to be hypocrites? Uh, I think that if we lose that, we lose everything. We become indistinguishable from the, the the lowliest places on earth where people live without freedom suffering all all along yeah. and uh that that's just it, it it's repulsive it's a rejection of the founding fathers uh promise in the declaration of independence for us uh and in the constitution and it's 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 just a tragedy of of, of enormous proportions it's the loss of an empire of liberty in favor of the mediocre socialism, run-of-the-mill socialism that has existed and ruined people all over the world we're buying into. I remember a, a speech delivered at the Republican convention by a businessman from Florida whose family had escaped uh, a tyranny in Spain under Franco. Uh, they settled in Cuba. Then they had to flee communism under Cuba. They landed in America, and he was crying, delivering this speech, saying, if America goes down, there's nowhere left to go. I think that's uh, true. Um, we, you know, Hong Kong is now a part of the communists. Uh, has been absorbed and punished by the Chinese communists, who are uh, globally expanding uh, all the time. And um, where do you turn for for freedom? Uh, you may you may find freedom. You can go to Canada, where you are. There's freedom. You can go to Great Britain. There's freedom. But it's a different kind of freedom. It's a, if we're true to our Constitution and Bill of Rights, we have something truly precious. Nowhere else on earth in the history of mankind was a nation founded on a Bill of Rights and a Constitution that vested sovereignty in the individual, maximized individual liberty, and made the state a servant of the people. Even in Canada today, where no doubt there's greater freedom than in, say, communist China. You, you have this, this, this lurching movement of authoritarianism where you don't have protection like a Bill of Rights because you don't have a, a, a charter of rights that is uh, resilient against the state. The state can withdraw your protection at will. Right. Well, the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to stand in the way of the government. Its very purpose is against the government. Right. What we when, have in when I go to court, I sue the government for violation of individual rights protected by the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights is so momentous in its Tenth Amendment, uh, it it grants protection for rights that are not even articulated in the Bill of Rights. Um, what we have in Canada, you, you mentioned Canada. What we have here is it reminds me of C.S. Lewis talking about tyranny. He said, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. That's what we have up here. The, you know, the, 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 uh, um, they're our parents. We look to, to government as our mother and father. Would you agree then with Lewis that it would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent uh, moral busybodies? I agree, and the reason why I would agree uh, is that when you have competition, robber barons, quote-unquote, they're nonetheless, as I point out in the book, even when the, they were so characterized, there was still a high degree of competition in the very markets they were accused of monopolizing. E even when you have that environment of uh, oligopoly, 
you still have the opportunity to move from one business to another, to, to escape the chains of slavery if they're attempting to create slavery, because you can leave that state and go to another business, and you can always find a way to compete. But when the government, which is monolithic and all-powerful, a union of military force and law, when that institution is the only one available and dictates your future, and where you may work, and what you may do, and what you may say, and who you may associate with, you are nothing more than a slave. You have no ability to leave. Wherever you are in the country, you're a slave. And that's the real problem with this, this, this movement to establish greater control, the nanny state uh, that you have in Canada. The greatest problem with the nanny state is there's no limit to the power that can be exercised. There's no limitation on what they can do. They can tell you today that you must wear a mask. They can tell you tomorrow that you can't leave your home. They can tell you the next day that uh, you, you must abide by certain rules as to who you may work for and why, and that there's an environmental agenda, and you may no longer work for your employer, and your employer may no longer employ. These uh, are all predicated on a notion of, of a common good or a public good. The problem with this common good or public interest is that it is simply a reflection of the will of those who have power, political power. So, and it comes at the expense of individual liberty. So what is the way forward, uh, Jonathan? I mean, uh, Because it seems like everything is going their way. They have infiltrated every cultural institution, every uh, acad academic institution, the, 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 uh, the corridors of political power. It seems like all is lost at this point. It's too late. Well, it isn't. It isn't too late. And the reason why it isn't too late is that inside all of us, at least in the West, where we have had the experience of tasting the, the sweet fruit of liberty, we have a, a recollection of what it means to be free, of what it means to have opportunity, what it means to live without government restraint. We've witnessed a crisis both in the COVID-19 environment and because of these uh, trumped-up uh, riots all over, the, all over the world by Antifa and BLM, an environment of chaos and crisis that is precisely the environment that the authoritarians thrive in and take advantage of to exploit the opportunity to expand their power in government. But that will eventually cause us to remember that there is a life that is extraordinary, and it does not involve a government nanny. It involves our courageous effort to live our lives according to the dictates of our own conscience, to do so with restraints only limited by the equal rights of others, and to recognize that we can be a great people, a, a people that can uplift the, the economy of the world over and over again, create the greatest standard of living yet again. If only we are allowed to be free. You know, there's a difference between a one-size-fits-all government approach, as they're using for this COVID-19 problem, and opening up the market to as many ideas and as free a, 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 an environment as possible 
for people to innovate, for people to come up with new ways to exist in the presence of the virus and to come up with solutions to the virus. Instead, what we've had is a state-managed solution to this and a one-size-fits-all approach. And that is the bane of progress. If we, will, if we intend on leaving it to government to decide what our fate is, we know where we're going. And it's not up, it's down. If we instead do what has always been the source, resort to what has always been the source of human progress, individual liberty, freedom to choose, trust in a free and open environment of debate, allow people, uh, everyday people, to debate with scientists, allow scientific information to flow freely into the marketplace, allow people to communicate their opinions, whether you agree with them or not, and especially if you don't, so that you can have an environment that uplifts, that transforms, that invites innovation, that is creative, and that is the genius of capitalism. That is the genius of protecting individual liberty. And that is the genius of individual sovereignty. You allow that to exist, and you can have the greatest nation on earth. You can have the greatest people on earth. And it multiplies itself over and over again. Unlike the one-size-fits-all, dumb approach of government of hammering away at the same direction, regardless of what the results are, You've got a sensitive tool in capitalism that responds to market demand that is itself answerable to the people and is constantly subject to their vote with their dollars. Well, how do we must adapt? How do we help people remember? We had this idea of a 1776 project in schools to counter the 1619 project to to help people remember what America is all about. Well, that's been uh, quashed by the Biden or the Harris administration, I should say. So, uh, how do we, aside from you know maybe getting the authoritarians into the uh, schools, how do we help people remember? Well, that's, that's why I wrote The Authoritarians. That's what motivated me to do it, was to show people that this, this great contrast between liberty and, and collectivism, between the idea of individual sovereignty and state sovereignty, between the idea of God-given rights and rights that the state says it gives you, which the state can then take away at its will. Uh, that contrast needs to be something that is so apparent to everyone that they will inextricably choose their own freedom. People naturally cleave towards freedom when, it's, when their freedom is being taken away, but unfortunately, if we wait, we will lose our freedom, and it is very hard to get it back. If you ask Donna Casanova, for example, who wrote a, a section of my book, uh, who lived under under communism in Russia, it was impossible. But everyone yearned to be free. Well, we don't want to go that far. We don't want to be there. And so we have to take measures now. We have to be politically active, whether we it's comfortable for us or not. We need to articulate our opinions, whether the government wishes to hear them or not. We need to form a counter-movement. We need to call out the hypocrisy that we see. And we need to ensure that we vote in a way that encourages liberty by voting for people who will defend liberty and act against big government and against the bureaucracy. And it's, it's a process of, of convincing people. But we will certainly not convince a soul unless we open our mouths. It is not comfortable for people to open their mouths. 
particularly in the present environment. And that is, is part of the Bolshevik method. It's to silence good people, to make people who would defend freedom cower in the corner rather than be in the square and open their mouths. We have to be willing to present a defense of liberty, not only a defense, but we have to go on the offense. We have to make members of Congress and members of Parliament understand that we are the majority. There, there are far more people who love liberty in the world, but in our countries, than there are people who support Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Those groups are a very small sliver, but they have a very loud voice. And what they do is accusatory. They try to shame people into shutting their mouths and leaving the public square to them alone. And then they turn it to violent ends. We have to be courageous enough to fight against that. And it comes with uh, uh, taking advantage of your rights. At a minimum, you have to protect your family and yourself. That means that you, to the extent that you can, you need to be uh, armed. And then you need to responsibly use those arms in defense of your family, your lives, and your family's lives when they're threatened. But you also need to do something more. You need to be aff affiliated with political groups that are against big government and are against the socialist movement. We have to call out socialism when we see it. We have to condemn it. We have to explain in detail what it does. And the authoritarians is, is a means to, to do that. Simply by giving people a copy of that book, you can educate them enormously, I think, about the threats that are posed by this way of thinking, where it came from, this thinking, what its consequences have been on, on the lives of people around the world, and what we give up when we buy into it and that uh, there is such fraud and hypocrisy and lies that are filled in the movements that are trying to take our liberties away. Uh, so you shouldn't be persuaded to endorse them, condone them, or sympathize with them. You should reject them. The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present. Uh, Jonathan, how do we get a copy? Uh, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, uh, anywhere books are sold, you should be able to obtain a copy. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>